Welcome back to Midwretched, friends. Welcome back. We're all feigning energy today. Yes, we are. How y'all doing? How y'all doing? I'm going to give you a silent second to respond back to us, even though we can't hear you. (laughs) (laughs) Respond back out loud or in your head. You're mostly all probably in your cars. So, yes. Or cleaning or cooking, which is usually the other oh. times when I do listen to podcasts. Me too. That was me today in the car all day podcasting and cleaning. I re-upped my Audible subscription. Nice. So I have been listening to – well, for this case, I re-upped my Audible subscription. Uh, um, okay. And then I – today I started pun- Punished by Rewards, which means nothing to anybody else except for psychologists. Um, mm. I uh, am reading – no drama discipline because we're having a lot of drama in our house and I would like less of it. <laughs> I recommend that one quite a bit. That one and also mindful parenting. Really? I looked at mindful parenting. and I think that's probably the next step because I think that's more about me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah, I don't. And yeah, you're usually pretty zen. I am. Um, but my four-year-old is a real challenge mm. and – Nobody warned me <laughs> about four-year-olds. See, here's the thing. And your four-year-old was the sweetest two-year-old. Mm-hmm. She was the most precocious little three-year-old. Mm-hmm. And an easy baby. An easy baby. So now it's like you got to make up for those four years. Yeah. And she, um, she's funny, though. So yesterday, I think it was yesterday. Yeah, yesterday we were uh, driving around because I just couldn't. There was so much mess in the house for Mother's Day and, like, making cookies and celebrating and stuff like that that I could not, like, fathom making any more mess Mm -hmm. before I had time to clean. So I was like, get in the car, kids. We're getting a happy meal. yeah. Fuck yeah. (laughs) So we got into the the mommy mobile and we drove to uh, Laporte, which is where the nearest McDonald's is. And uh, the baby fell asleep. And so I was like, hey, Penn, we're just going to drive around a little bit and let the baby sleep. You can eat your happy meal. I find myself driving by the Belgunas farmstead. Of course. Um, And then I'm circling around, and she's like, oh, a park, a park, a park. Are we going to the park? Can we get out? And I'm like, there's bodies under that park. Yeah, like, I guess. And then I Google, and like, yeah, the park is built on top of the former farmstead. And she's like, it's a beautiful little park. There's like a. kind of like a pond these are the ponds that she was like writing about in her letters to seduce all these men to come over you know and she's sitting on a park bench eating her cheeseburger and she's like this is so sweet mommy (laughs) it was so (laughs) cute i'm like you have no idea what happened to your child (laughs) i i hope you guys keep going back to that park and you build these beautiful wonderful memories and then when she's like my family's children like we get into the dark shit really early, so I would say if it was my family, like, eight, I would break it to her. But your your family is, like, better than mine. No. <laughs> so I would wait I was until into some pretty dark like, shit at a young age. <laughs> uh, when my niece was, like, I think three, she insisted on going as the Bride of Chucky for Halloween. Oh, that's awesome. And f- over Easter... I guess my sister texted me this this story. She was just like on her tablet, just like you know, little four year, five year old YouTube video scrolling, and she mm. found this video about like the resurrection of Jesus somehow. Oh my god! <laughs> and we are not a religious people. 
And so she like she brings it to my sister and she was like, This says that Jesus died and he came back to life after four days. Is that like how zombies are made? Oh my god, how cute is that? And my sister texts me and she was like, All she knows about Jesus is that it's something that mommy says when she's frustrated. <laughs> Oh my gosh that's tough that's tough yeah so that's uh that's a tough one that's why i say like i don't i don't if it was my family i'd break it to them early like as they're playing be like mm, did you know men were buried here <laughs> do you want to go play think- over there there was like a nice little swedish man who was like drained <laughs> of his like body fluids over there. yeah that's where like the hog pen was <laughs> I mean, what was funny, too, was that, like, this park, the neighborhood was not great. Um, Like, a lot of Trump flags and, like, Confederate flags and stuff like that. And then as we were driving around, there's, like, a significantly nicer park on the other end of the Belgunis land. And I'm like, damn it. Why didn't we go to this park? I'm stupid. Mm. I didn't know. I didn't know. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, she's she has her spooky side. She loves Halloween. Oh, yeah. Um, she's been asking me a lot about death lately. Okay. Um, which has been the other night for bed. She was like, um, you know, why do you die? And then, well, then what happens when you undie? And I was like. You come back to life like Jesus and zombies. That's what I should have said. But I said, let's talk about it tomorrow. <laughs> anyway. Uh, darkness. Death. There's a lot of darkness today. Yes. So there, there's your transition. Darkness. Darkness. I did such a good job setting you up. Thank you. Also, this case just like solidified my dream career. Hmm. My entire dream career. Everything I would ever want in my entire life is to just do psychological autopsies. Ah. If I could make a living doing that at the same pay rate that I get now. <laughs> yeah, I was like, why can't you? And then you had that part. It's like, well, okay. Anyway, I just wanted to say that because, like, this shit makes me happy. Not, like, this case doesn't make me happy, but doing profiles makes me happy. Although the man we're going to talk about today is, like, he reads, like, a fucking Dick and Jane book. <laughs> and we'll go through everything and you will see how utterly transparent this man and his crimes are so yeah yeah interesting all right all right i'm ready so shall we just dive right into it let's do it i'm ready for it okay so today's case is going to take us to kansas city missouri Mm. one of the bigger towns we haven't been in a big town in a while no we've been real small town lately i mean it's like it's a big midwestern town something big enough to have a barbecue style anyway so we're heading down into lovely kansas city missouri um, way back to April 2nd, 1988. Ah, good year, good year. It is. It's a good year. It's Easter weekend. It also happens to be Final Four weekend. Ah. Local to Kansas City on this particular day. The majority of the city and I would say a good chunk of the nation was pretty focused on the NCAA Final Four being played in Kansas City's own Kemper Arena. Oh, cool. It is now High V Arena. That's weird. Yeah, I know. Weird. Weird name. Hmm. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and it just happened to include the local Kansas Jayhawks. Ah. Who would actually happen to 
go on to win the tournament that year. Nice. I like the Jayhawks. That's good. Mm-hmm. Meh. Anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not a big Jayhawks fan, but... But, well, the city was focused on cheering on their local team and updating their brackets and probably tearing up a few brackets. Mm. Something very different was happening just four miles away in the Kansas City neighborhood of Hyde Park. And in Hyde Park, a 22-year-old Chris Bryson is locked in a bedroom, tied to a bed inside the house on 4315 Charlotte Street, where he had been held and tortured for multiple days. Wow. Chris Bryson is tied to the bed with ropes, with his hands tied in front of him. As long as he has been there, all he has been thinking about is how can he escape, how can he escape, how can he escape. His captor happened to be gone at the time. And Chris sees a box of matches left by his captor, used to light cigarettes. He manages to fumble his way to the box of matches left by his captor, burns through the ropes that tie his hands together. Panicked, he searches for the quickest way out of the room, and in his fear, he believes his only option is to throw himself through the second-story window. Dang. Throws himself through the window. He's on the roof. The only escape he sees is to jump off the roof. In doing so, he injures him his leg and cuts himself with the glass on the ground, but he manages to make it, breaking only a bone in his foot. Wow. Right? Yeah, that's really lucky. After Chris lands, he pauses, looks around, and runs to the nearest human he sees. Mm. A meter reader. Just to paint this picture for you, Chris Bryson is battered, beaten, nude, still with ties around his arms and a dog collar around his neck. Oh my god. Running toward this meter reader, covered in blood. Oh god, this poor man. The meter reader is clearly horrified by what he sees. Yeah. And in a rasp voice, Bryson screams to help him to help The meter reader has no idea what to do, so he runs with the man to the nearest neighbor, knocks on the door, and the neighbor, equally fucking terrified of the sight on his front door, refuses to let them in, but does agree to let them sit on the front porch while he calls the cops. Wow. How this plays out is going to depend slightly on what you read, and so I'm going to pause for a hot second Because as you can tell, we have a really dramatic opening scene here. Yes. And the rest of the crime is going to be just as dramatic. Mm. In cases like this that are are so high drama, we have a lot of myth, a lot of gossip, a lot of Mm. exaggeration, and a lot of twisting. Yes, that's so true. We're also in 1988, the height of the satanic panic. Mm. Ah, yeah. We're also in Kansas City, and we're going to be talking about some marginalized populations, namely male sex workers and substance-dependent men. Gotcha. So even the reporting at the time is at best biased, at worst, utterly fucking wrong. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So what I have managed to find are the direct reports of how this went. 
um, mm. from the police who said them. Got it. Um, okay. Which have been twisted and turned over time to make them look a little bit better. <laughs> mm. Well, of course they have. Of course they have. Uh, quick, quick question, real mm-hmm. quick, if you don't mind. Uh, I'm looking at a Google Street View of that address. Mm-hmm. And the house is beautiful. That is not the actual house. The house is an empty lot right now. Okay. Ah, uh, oh, okay. It, it's got to be the house, the empty lot next door. Okay. It is a very, very nice neighborhood. It looks beautiful. It, is- it looks like the neighborhood that we lived in uh, before we bought this house. Mm-hmm. It's. It looks historic, beautiful. Row houses. Midwestern yep. houses. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. And people have like... Um, they have the same sign in their yard that I have in mine, that across the street neighbor, the um, no matter where you're from, we're glad that you're our neighbor in Aww. English, Spanish, and Arabic. Um, yeah, like this looks like a really chill, lovely, like kind of upper middle class family neighborhood. Was it, it then? It was a little bit more middle class at the time. Um, okay. So a little bit lower income, but it was still a very nice, very neighborhoodly town. It's gone up a little bit in SES status, but that's about it. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So a few of the sources that we're going to talk about, the book Robert Berdella, The True Story of the Kansas City Butcher, is based on his confession. I tried to actually find the transcript of his confession, but I had to have gone through the Kansas law libraries, and Mm. that was not a possibility. Mm. And... A few documentaries, a few podcasts, um, to be completely honest, the Generation Y podcast, um, which is the guys that host that are Kansas City locals, so I think that they did the Mm -hmm. best job. Um, I always love a local storyteller. Absolutely. Um, And the documentary Bizarre Bizarre, which we'll talk about where that title came from. Um, Interesting. Great interviews. Also, absolutely tasteless. Mm-hmm. and a really awkward framing device and really inappropriate reenactments of crimes. So. Interesting. Okay. Fascinating mix of a documentary and wonderful interviews with this really weird framing device of this band getting a, traveling to a gig. Weird. And weird musical interludes. <laughs> okay, then. So, what we're going to talk about is, to say it, the very least is rough. Yeah. Um, This research hurt my soul to do. Mm. I'm going to talk about some of the events of this case, but I am not going to get into the nitty gritty like a, like a lot of podcasts and other places do. If you want to, great, listen to them. They will give you a fucking hit by hit account. That's less important to me. And kind of what we're going to do. We are here to do an episode of Why Are You Like This? Very good. Our favorite episodes. My favorite episodes. Mm -hmm. So if you want more of a beat-by-beat, play-by-play of exactly what our perpetrator did, there are so many other podcasts. And again, some of them are really, really well done, and I do like them. It hurts my soul to listen to them. Um, Mm -hmm. The book on Robert Berdello will give you every single event. Wow. So all of that said and done, let's jump back to that house on Charlotte Street. Okay. That you lovingly pointed out is in a beautiful neighborhood. Yeah, that's really cute. And so we are with Chris Bryson, 
nude, covered in blood, wearing nothing but a dog collar, sitting outside the front porch of a neighbor's house. Mm. When the police finally come, Bryson tells them that for the last five days, he has been held in the house next door against his will, tied up, being systematically raped and tortured, chemicals being injected into his eyes and throat. Oh my God. Drugged until he passed out and raped multiple times a day by the owner of the home, Robert Berdella. Five days of that. Five days. Wow. He had had drain cleaner and other chemicals injected into his eyes to temporarily blind him. Oh my God. And injected into his throat to make him mute. It's incredible that he survived that. He is still alive. He changed his name and moved out of state, and I will respect his privacy. Very good. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so police are listening to this story, and according to interviews with the officers, didn't believe him. Mm. Did not believe that this could be true. They thought, oh, what are these silly gays up to this time? Oh, God. Now, some of you might be thinking, what the fuck? Yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Mm-hmm. How, how, how do you look at this man, and how do you think that? Yeah. Others of you might be like, oh, that sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. And you might think True. to yeah. Jeffrey Dahmer or Anthony Sowell, mm. and yes. how their victims were not believed despite their very tortured appearance when presenting to the police. Yes. Very true. This is a story we've heard in many ways again and again and again. And the police think, oh, this is just another gay lover squirrel. It's so preposterous. Like, if it wasn't so tragic, mm-hmm. it would be mm-hmm. laughable. But it's just so disgusting that, yeah. 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 It's just, I don't, the fact that it, I can cite that same interaction in multiple cases offends the fuck out of me same 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 and a- across time like him and Dahmer were pretty similar in time yeah but... yeah yeah but even with like Sowell you know at that point we're talking about the 2000s right yep and yep. you know we'd like to think we'd have evolved in that 20 years but mm, not really mm, not in the midwest yeah mm. Mm. Hopefully we get there eventually. But. Uh, well, the police did get there eventually. It honestly didn't take them too long to finally at least start to investigate what they saw. Well, that's good. Um, now, it just so happened, like I said, that uh, Robert Berdella, the man who owned the house, was at work mm. at his personal oddities shop, Bob's Bazaar Bazaar. Ah, yeah. okay. Now, side note, it just irritates me. Bizarre, bizarre should have been the other way around. It's bizarre, bizarre. Really? Like like a shop, but bizarre. It should be the other way around. It should be bizarre, bizarre. Yeah, that's stupid. Yeah. Anyway, he's dumb. Yeah. So, <laughs> we don't like you. If, we, you. if you couldn't tell already, we do not like you. And we do not like your grasp on the English language either. Yeah. Um, spoiler alert. Bob Berdella is a terrible human being. Yeah. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Anyway, so Robert Berdella is at his shop, Bob's Bazaar Bizarre. And (laughs) 
And he got a heads up from a local, said, hey, Bob, there's people at your house, or there's cops at your house. What's going on? So shocked, maybe a little scared, Berdella quickly closes up shop and heads right home, where he is quickly arrested and taken in for questioning. During questioning, Berdella is just absolutely shocked and offended by any insinuation that he could be doing anything improperly. Hmm. He fancies himself a pillar of the community. What? An entrepreneur, a chef with plenty of accolades, a member of the South Hyde Park Neighborhood Association and Crime Prevention Association. Oh, for God's sake. How dare they make these insinuations? So the cops say, okay, well, you know, we have this man who is accusing you of sexual assault. We need to search your house. He refuses. Hmm. Luckily, based on Bryson's statement, they are pretty quickly able to get a warrant. And literal physical condition. And literal physical condition. Like, I'm sorry, it's... We're going to talk about some things, but there are pictures. Of Chris Bryson? Of everything. Oh, God. Literally everything. In case you are not already getting tinges of narcissistic personality disorder, Mm -hmm. spoilers. So, police get the search warrant and head to Berdella's house to search, which first proved to be a bit of a challenge. Um, Their first challenge being the two aggressive chow chows, which actually had to have animal control called to sedate and remove the chows. before they could even get into the house when they got into the house they are met with floor to ceiling boxes magazines clothes trash clutter and the absolute stench of dog feces they managed to work their way through up to the second story bedroom where they found a bloodstained bed with burnt ropes attached supporting bryson's story Mm A bloodied metal pole, a tray of hypodermic needles, ah. swabs and eyedroppers with unknown substances on them, electrical transformers with clamps at the end of the wires, and 350 Polaroid pictures of young men in various states of torture and abuse, some clearly alive and some seemingly dead. Oh my god. Hundreds of Polaroid pictures of tortured and abused men. You know what is so interesting is that that is such an echo of Dahmer. Mm-hmm. But this is such a... This is pre-Dahmer. Dahmer was 91? Ah, uh, yeah, I think that's when he was apprehended, right? I want to say, because I feel like... I have vague memories of when he was murdered, which was right... He was die. He died in ninety four. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he was committing murders between seventy eight and ninety one. Okay. Yeah. So he was. He would have been apprehended in ninety one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I had them flip flopped. Mm, yeah. So we're in nineteen eighty eight. Right. So right, right. I mean, they're basically killing in parallel. Yeah, they are, and doing very similar things in parallel. Yep. That's what I'm. That's what I was kind of like, whoa, yeah. about when you mentioned the pictures. Like, that's so the same thing. There's so much more that's similar. Like, I halfway believe these two were secret pen pals. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? So, 
Remember that the police only had the warrant for it to investigate the sexual abuse charges? Mm. Once they saw the bedroom, they immediately had to call the attorneys to get a new warrant to investigate for the murders. Because at the very least, these cops didn't want to fuck anything up once they saw what they were faced with. Good. And could you imagine their shock? Oh my god. We're not I don't even know if shock is the right word for coming into that scene. Hold uh, hold on, because there's a lot more scene to get through. Oh god, okay. A fuller investigation of the house would reveal two human skulls, an envelope full of human teeth, human vertebrae, a hacksaw, miter saw, and chainsaw that, when sprayed, revealed just a bloodbath, and a basement bathtub, which, again, those luminol spray tests would reveal just massive amounts of blood, and a steno notebook that detailed the torture sessions and cruel experimentation of young men over the last four years. Wow. He took detailed notes of his torture sessions. I feel like House of Horrors is like a cliche in the true crime world, but I also don't know what the fuck else to call this. There, I mean, cliches exist for a reason because sometimes they are true. And this is that time. Yeah, like, there's just bones and bloodied shit around. And what actually ends up making this investigation difficult is that, remember, Bob owns and operates an oddities shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am I am a loving purveyor of oddities shops. Same. So I can only imagine what the houses of people who run them look like. Yeah, There absolutely. probably are animal bones and different collectibles and shit around, yeah. and I would not be shocked to see them. Right, right, right. So initially it was always like, oh, those are, those are fake, or those are just, you know, he's getting ready to sell them kind of shit. Mm-hmm. Spoilers, not. Yikes. So as we can imagine that scene in our heads... And we imagine Bob Berdella sitting in the police station, just denying and being just offended by any accusations against him. This is where we ask ourselves, who the fuck are you, Robert Berdella? Indeed. And why are you like this? Yes. Very much why are you like this. Because get ready, this shit is going to be unsettling. Hmm. So let's dive into the life and times of Bob Berdella. Please do. Yes. Robert Berdella was born in 1949, the oldest child of his parents, Robert and Alice Berdella. He grew up in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. Mm. Cuyahoga Falls is beautiful. Like, I want you to take a second and Google it. It is beautiful. Really? Oh, there are actual falls. I was not expecting that. Well, it comes down from the Cuyahoga River, which also connects to uh, Lake Erie. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah, that's a really beautiful place. Wow. I was not expecting that at all. No. It is a it's a little suburb with some amazing forests and waterfalls that are, like I said, fed by the Cuyahoga River. Beautiful. About an hour south of Cleveland, just outside of Akron. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty industrial town at the time that Bardella was growing up there. The waterfalls fed into a lot of the industry, um, especially a lot of the auto industry. We're still very, very rust belt here. 
Mm. Over time, it's become pretty modern suburban. Yeah, looks like it. That's still beautiful. Oh, yeah. Cuyahoga Falls, also home to, wait for it, wait for it, Bob Lewis, another founding member of Devo. (laughs) (laughs) No way. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Do we have to subtitle this show? (laughs) Devo's Midwretched. It's called Seven Degrees of Devo. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Maybe we could get them to be our Patreons. Mm. Devo, hit us up. You probably don't want these to be the connections that people make to your music. But any connection's a good connection, right? Any publicity is good publicity. I, mm -hmm. Come on, write a letter. I bet none of our listeners guessed how crucial Diva was going to be to Midwestern true crime. If you had asked me two years ago or whenever we started, two, three years ago. What band do you think is going to pop up most often? It would not have been Devo. It would not have been Devo. Well, also, Cuyahoga Falls is also home to the lovely Gates McFadden, Ooh. a.k.a. the irreplaceable Dr. Beverly Crush from Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> God, you're such a nerd. <laughs> anyway, Bob <Bardella. laughs> Wait, wait, I got one more. I got one more factoid. And okay. site of the doodlebug disaster <laughs> oh. in 1940. Well, that sounds just terrible. <laughs> It was a train crash. It was a train accident oh. of the train, the doodlebug. Well, that is terrible. It has nothing to do with anything. I just, I like to throw my factoids in there because this is a dark case and I needed some moments. Yes. We need, you need levity in them. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Because the abuse is going to start real quick. Okay. Anyway. Okay. Here. So Bob Bardello is growing up in Cuyahoga Falls. Um, honestly, probably not too outside the timeline of Devo and the lovely Gates McFadden. His dad worked uh, for the Ford factory as a die setter. His mom was a homemaker. The family was very strictly Catholic. Church every Sunday, all of the traditions and all of the beliefs and all of the dogma associated with Catholicism. I expect no less. As you should not. Bob Jr., our, our main man here... Grew up a loner. He actually grew up pretty young with some pretty kind of notable health problems. Hmm. He is described as having severe nearsightedness, speech impediment, and high blood pressure from a young age. Like so high of blood pressure that he was put on medication while he was still in elementary school. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I wonder where that came from. Yeah. Probably something congenital it had to be. Like at that young of an age or possible anxiety disorders, that sort of thing. And because of these few things, the nearsightedness, the speech, the blood pressure, um, he was not allowed to play sports. Like physically, medically cleared, he was not allowed to play sports. Um, He was targeted by bullies quite a bit. That's not surprising. God, no. Especially not in like the 50s and 60s when he would have been growing up. Yeah. Um, But more so than the bullies um, was his dad, his main bully. Mm. In his father's eyes, his father, who was a strict Catholic, who very, very much valued athletics, Bob Jr. was a failure of a human. Mm. He couldn't play sports. He couldn't do anything. He wasn't manly. He wasn't masculine. And he did not hide these negative beliefs from Bob. Mm. Especially after Bob's younger brother, Daniel, was born. 
Bob was about seven years old when his brother Daniel was born, but Daniel was apparently a natural athlete from a very early age and just the absolute apple of his father's eye. Mm. He had none of these congenital issues Bob had, and he was athletic and perfect, and yeah. Yeah. Bob Sr., his father, was known to be uh, physically abusive, or I should say he's known to be abusive toward both of the boys. Verbally abusive was cited in many, many accounts. Physical abuse was cited in fewer accounts, but was more Mm. specific that he would beat them with a leather strap. Okay. That sort of thing. So I'm primed to believe it because the accounts were more specific. Mm-hmm. And while he was abusive toward both of the boys, again, he really, really targeted Bob. Every negative word, every criticism. Like I said, his dad was his biggest bully. Yeah. Academically, Bob Berdella did fine. He was considered bright by his teachers. But they also, several noted that he was difficult to teach due to his due to his, quote, aloofness. Mm. I'm guessing as a teacher, you've kind of had those kids. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Especially, I mean, you know, school is built for the extrovert. God, tell me about it. Yeah. And I'm going to drop in at really, another really... one of my therapy sessions. <laughs> and it is really hard to teach kids that won't connect with you. Yeah. I mean, because that's, that's what you're going to try first, even in those days, is connection first, you know? Mm-hmm. And if the child won't won't engage for whatever reason, it's not always like, you know, needing to be like fully participatory, but you can be engaged and still quiet. Mm-hmm. But it's the lack of engagement that, yes, I would, I have, I can think of several kids right off the top of my head that I could say that about. Yes. Yeah. And he seemed to be not only aloof to children, but to like his peers, but mm-hmm. also to the adults in his life. Um, he rarely socialized. He was pretty isolated. And that seems in part due to the bullying, but like we were kind of talking about, it also just seems kind of part of his general personality and presentation as a kid. Likely a big trauma presentation that trauma just becomes part of your personality as you get older. Mm-hmm. Yes. To <laughs> <laughs> our conversation before we started recording. <laughs> Uh, yeah, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, again, this all makes sense, right? He's isolated. He's aloof. He's being emotionally and physically abused at home. He has no opportunities to build confidence or competence. Mm-hmm. And he has every reason to shut down. Every reason to shut down. And in, like, the 60s and the 70s, if you're um, growing up a boy, you're expected to play sports and you're expected mm-hmm. to play all of this different shit. Yeah. He was, there was no way this kid was going to get any of the support that he needed. Mm. One thing, however, that he did find that he loved was pen pals. Oh, for the love. <laughs> he was an avid pen paler. Okay. Has anyone done a deep dive into his letters? I did not see it. I don't know if anybody has ever found his letter, like his early letters. I Mm. do know, like he pen paled with people from across the globe. Interesting. And this started, it seems like it started kind of middle schoolish. But he would write to people in like the Pacific Islands, the Middle East, like Mm. everywhere. And 
you know, he collected the letters and people would send him small trinkets, especially he loved the ones from the Pacific Islands, from South America, all of that Mm. stuff. And he would continue this hobby throughout his life. And honestly, as he got older and he kind of expanded this pen pal network into his legit business connections, those trinkets evolved into real artifacts of value. And that's how he started developing his first store. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, no. Again, mm. Bob, did you know, Jeff? You're yep. both dead. But True. So we're going to hold a seance and ask if you knew each other. You know what? Mm. Certainly you know each other now in the beyond. But uh, Just remember to close out the Ouija session. Because yeah, this is energy. I don't even believe in this shit, but this is energy I do not need in my life. No, no, we'll be very careful, I promise. So, Bob is shy, isolated, but he has his pen pals. Mm. He has a girlfriend, but she lives in Canada. Just kidding. Mm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All of that shyness and isolation, though, would change when he hit his teenage years. Mm. Once he started hitting puberty, Bob kind of got out of his shell a little bit. He did have a girlfriend for a brief period of time, But he pretty quickly realized that he was gay. Mm. Relatively young in high school. Gotcha. Honestly, pretty shocking at this time. Mm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially in this time, but more than the time, the place. The location, the church, the family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the context. In his context, this is a big deal. Yeah. And so, and because of all of that context, he would keep this a complete secret for the next several years. Mm-hmm. Again, we're early to mid sixties. Yeah. Um, what's odd is for a lot of kids at around this time in history, when they realized they were gay, they kind of retreated even more into themselves. Yeah. That was kind of, again, not healthy. I'm glad that we. I'm glad that it's less common now, but that was more of a common route to go down. But for whatever reason, Bob just suddenly became what some people might call confident suddenly. Hmm. What others, though, would call rude and condescending. (laughs) One man's confident (laughs) is another man's douchebag. The tall white man's burden. (laughs) Yes, indeed. I need to refresh myself on what he looked like. Oh, God, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. Jesus. There are pictures. There are. Please don't. Yeah. Don't go down the rabbit hole of those pictures. Yeah, Um, they're bad. I love you too much. Yeah, they're bad. Um, Again, people that kind of remembered him from this time, kind of going back to the people he knew in Ohio, really seemed to think he was just an arrogant dick, especially Mm. so to women that he would just condescend them and think that he was better than them and all of that. Mm. All of that said, Bob had some aptitudes, um, especially for cooking and for art, also for showmanship. He could definitely put on a personality and put on a show. So, well, in many other circumstances, I would love to see a young, awkward gay man coming out of his shell And finding his artistic side and thriving. But that is not where this is about to go. Mm. 
So a couple of things are going to happen in 1965 when Bob is 16 years old. Um, the first is that a new movie comes out, um, which he later credits as his inspiration for what he will go on to do. Oh, jeez. The movie is called The Collector. Like I said, it came out in 1965. Yep. Honestly, I really like this movie. Yeah. I, I, I saw it way back in the day, and I rewatched it a few weeks ago. I genuinely enjoy this movie. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a good movie. It's got that good 60s horror suspense. Mm-hmm. It's basically, you know, spoiler alerts for a fucking, like, almost 60-year-old movie. Yeah. Um, it's about kind of this very awkward man that comes into some money and decides that he's going to buy this house, kidnap a woman, and force her to fall in love with him. It's not That's enough important. that she just has sex with him. He wants her to fall in love with him eventually like a lot of stuff happens like it's one of those things it's it what's what i like about it is that she tries everything she tries to seduce him she tries to fight him she tries everything and none of it is good enough um even when she tries to compliment him he's mad at her because it's fake when she tries to seduce him he calls her a whore and i'm like ain't this womanhood (laughs) yes yes um but anyway she eventually dies from the abuse that she suffers from him and he blames her for her own death because she thinks she's too good for him and um after she dies he's shown hunting another girl that's really interesting that that's the movie that he idolizes because it feels like it gives him permission Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it yeah It is very, very much the mental state that he takes on. And listen, Mm -hmm. if it wasn't this movie, it would have been something else. Absolutely. Like, he just, he saw this and he's like, oh, that's what I want to do. If he had seen Seven, he would have done that. If he would have seen Psycho, he would have done that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he was waiting for an excuse to do whatever it is that he was Mm going to do. The same year, Bob begins working at a local restaurant. Um, Typical job for a kid. Um, Much later in life, he would reveal that he was raped by an adult co-worker at this job. Mm -hmm. Again, at the time, he tells nobody about this incident. But um, he does say that he became more withdrawn after it. So he's kind of coming Mm -hmm. out of his shell. He's getting a little cocky. He's kind of throwing it around. And then... He has this incident of rape and abuse, and then he kind of withdraws again into himself. Interesting. Okay. But we don't have much information about kind of that incident or what happened. Um, The final thing that happened that year was right around Christmas time. His family is visiting some extended family in Canton, Ohio for the holidays. On Christmas Day, his father, Bob Sr., has a heart attack. He's taken to the hospital for a few days On the 27th, Bob Jr. drives back home to Cuyahoga. And on that same day, on December 27th, Bob Sr. dies in the hospital. Mm. Bob Bardella initially seeks solace in the Catholic Church, the church he knew, the church he grew up in. Yeah. But he's not satisfied with the answers they give him. He's not satisfied. Like, we're talking really complicated grief here. There is nothing easy about grieving your abuser. Mm Mm-hmm. So he has a lot of answers that nobody really has, or a lot of questions that nobody right. really has answers for. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're going to hear a lot of platitudes and... Yeah. Um, so he starts looking at other religions and he really like genuinely experiments with every other, every single religion, paganism, Satanism, blah, 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 everything. But there's just, again, there's no answers in this situation. The more you look, the more disappointed you're going to be. And I, Mm -hmm. except find a really good therapist. Yes. That's, that is always the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Always. Now, pretty shortly after this, his mother remarries. Um, everything that you will read says that Bob was resentful about this, um, primarily because she was upset that he remarried or that his mother remarried too soon and it was disrespectful to his father. It was against, it went against their religion and basically that he didn't like this man, that he was just fucking resentful. Mm. Um, I think it's just more of the grief, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And honestly, he was 16, 17 at this time, and he would have moved away to college pretty shortly afterward. Sure. Um, So I don't know how much that remarriage had on his actual pathology so Mm. much as the developmental trauma and the heart condition. Literally everything else. It's not as though he's got like a shortage of things (laughs) that would cause him issues. I think he had developed narcissistic personality traits long before this. And either way, he's just sitting there simmering in his resentment until he graduates high school. Mm. So we see that social withdrawal. Um, In 1966, he was actually placed in an independent study program. That's interesting. Some reports all, I think, will say that this was because his um, scholastic aptitude. I, I, I think it had more to do with mental health stuff. Rob's not, actually. Yeah. Yeah. He might have been a bright kid. But I'm not sensing, like, exceeding levels of brilliance. Yeah, yeah. And you don't tend to see that at that age anyway. Mm-hmm. So More often you'd see early graduation, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he graduates high school in 1967 and is accepted into the Kansas City Art Institute, where he accepts to pursue his dream of becoming an art professor. And that's how he gets to Kansas City. And that's how he gets to Kansas City. Got it. Okay. And this is also where we're going to see a bit of a change in his personality. Another Another change in his personality. (laughs) Guess what sparked this one? Another Drugs. Ah, that was my second guess. His professors considered him... You know, when he first started to be talented and attentive as a student. However, by his sophomore year at the Art Institute, um, he starts to make some friends because it's an art school. All the weirdos become friends there. Yeah. You do what you do. Totally. We don't begrudge a weirdo making friends. We never begrudge a weirdo making friends until things start to go downhill. Yes. And then we begrudge. We're going to begrudge a lot, so... Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Those friends start to introduce him to some substances. It's 1967. He starts with the alcohol, marijuana, LSD, um, and kind of moves on to some sedatives, some tranquilizers. Mm. Jealous. Did you say Nothing. jealous? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just, just kidding. Just, no, you're not. Shut up. <laughs> cut, cut you that. want 12 un- Hi, You want 12 uninterrupted hours of rest. Oh, my God. Don't I, 
Just find somebody uh, to so dump badly. the kids with. Just. <laughs> mm. Do you want to hang out with them for 12 hours overnight so I can sleep? You're my best friend I in the whole world. I am world. your best friend in the whole wide world. That's why I will volunteer my sisters. <laughs> and I do love your sisters. I don't know if they love me enough. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we're putting my dad on kid duty, so. Are oh, he's really? totally on kid duty for the wedding. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So just like pop him off with my dad. We'll see how that does with my kid because she's afraid of men that aren't her father or stepfather. My dad's pretty jovial. He's got a big like Santa belly. He's got a big Santa belly. <laughs> Jinx. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, anyway. <laughs> back back on track. So this is where we start to see Bob Berdella start to be a little anti-authoritarian. I don't know how genuine this is or how much it's just like it's the, it's the 60s and he's doing drugs sure. and there's LSD. Um, he starts selling drugs. He's a pretty low-level drug dealer, mostly to other students at the art school. Um, mm-hmm. But then his art starts to take a turn. Interesting. Where he starts engaging in a little animal torture for the sake of art. Oh, that's not a turn. That's something bigger than a turn. I'm going to describe a couple of art pieces for you. In one, scare quotes, art piece, he creates this like kind of walk through labyrinth maze kind of piece. And don't quote me on this because honestly, I couldn't stomach it enough to dig really hard into the research. But I do think it's an important es- to see like this escalation that he's about to do. So he creates this art piece and has people kind of walk through this la- he labyrinth. At the beginning of the labyrinth, he gives everybody a little baby chick to oh hold in their hands. And he has them hold it and kind of bond with it and, you know, like you do a cute little fuzzy baby chick um, as you're walking mm-hmm. through this labyrinth together. And at the very end of the labyrinth is just this massive jump scare. And that everybody walking through, what do you do when you have a jump scare? You squeeze your hands together. It's just, it's a natural inclination. Oh, God. Yeah. So they face this jump scare and kill the ducklings. Oh, my God. What a monster. In another exhibition, he experimented with tranquilizing a dog that ended up dying. There was another exhibition that in, that included him killing a chicken and I, I some places said killing and cooking the chicken as part of the exhibition. Hmm. Who was allowing him to put on these shows? So eventually nobody because okay. In after he got reprimanded several several times and I think that this was one of those hmm. things. I don't know. Sister, you went to art school reach out to me let me know how Mm -hmm. much of your art projects actually get approved like what what does that look like right and like where are the lines Uh right because there there are there are lines there are lines Mm -hmm. but eventually in 1969 after getting several reprimands from professors and the board at the school between his animal torture art and his increasing drug use it's said that he withdraws from the school. My guess is this mm. is one of those I qu- I'm quitting before you can fire me kind of things. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. 
So I think that that's a really poignant escalation in his behavior. <laughs> it is. It's crucial. It's really crucial. And I think it's, it's interesting to me that it's not only him torturing animals, but him getting other people to kill animals. And the show mm-hmm. of it. So there's the, the three layers of it, right? Like there's the cruelty to the animals in and of itself. There's the involvement in other people. That's another layer. And then there's the fact that it's not just involving other people, but doing so on a stage, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. like with a platform. Yeah, like I said, he... he That's extremely unusual. He enjoyed being a showman. Yeah. Um, I think he always liked getting a reaction out of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he leaves school apparently he's not too upset about this he continues selling drugs to make money he's arrested a few times for selling meth and for selling marijuana at one point he's sentenced to five years he gets off very early like i think in less than a year Mm. and in all this time he's working as a cook and kind of working his way up to eventually a chef he actually kind of like made some waves in the kansas city missouri culinary world (laughs) um He started, like, a training program and doing all of that stuff. But all the while, he's, like, kind of sinking deeper into the drug world. He's starting to pull away from any pro-social connections that he might have had leading up to this. Mm. And by the kind of tail end of his career as a chef, he's spending most of his time with sex workers, homeless folks, petty criminals, that sort of thing. Yeah. But he's managing to make enough money to purchase the house at 4315 Charlotte Street in Hyde Park in Kansas City. Oh, he was there for a very long time. Very, very long time. Like, he bought this house Hmm. and kind of lived there for the rest of his life. By the way, maybe I'm just bitter about home prices, but what? Yeah. I'm just like, I was not expecting. (laughs) And you get to buy this beautiful house. I'm just, I was not expecting to hear that he was. In the home for a long time. Oh, yeah. He was in the... Or that he owned the home. Yeah, for almost 20 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this actually becomes a relatively stable period of Berdella's life. Mm -hmm. At some point, kind of between starting art school and now, he came out as openly gay. So he's living. His neighbors know he's gay. People in, like, the community all know that he's gay. At one point, he had a serious relationship another man it said that their breakup was traumatic but that's literally all anything says interesting i was just gonna ask did he date had one relationship with a vietnam veteran and it's just said that they had a traumatic breakup Mm. so i wonder if devo has anything to say about that (laughs) we are devo Devo wrote a song about it (laughs) (laughs) and there's a next gen episode about it actually i'm just kidding Obviously, There's obviously. no serial killers in the Star Trek universe because they're better than that. That's true. That is very true. Well, not any humans. But anyway. Okay, nerd, keep going. <laughs> I love you. So he's at the house on Charlotte Street, um, and he genuinely does, like I said, work his way up in the Kansas City culinary scene. He opens, and he takes some of his money to open a little shop, first at the local flea market. He opens Bob's Bazaar Bizarre, where he sold antiques and oddities, including a lot of those trinkets that he had collected over the years from pen pals. And at this point, like, he really starts, like, turning those pen pals into business connections. Mm. So he's selling those trinkets as well as, like, general oddities, books, 
stuff that you see at an oddities shop. Crystal sure. skulls that you buy for your friends because you know they need the they need the energy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> how sweet! He sets up, like I said, a little cook training program. He joins the neighborhood association and the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention Association. His neighbors considered him quote flamboyant but civic minded. That's a description that I could live with. You know what? If that was. If, if it ended at that, then this would be a happy story. Yes, Bullied indeed. kid yes, grows up, becomes an entrepreneur. Lovely. Yeah. Okay, so oh, we're yeah, done. No. no. So in 1982, he, his little flea market shop has grown, and now he has a full-blown storefront. He quits cooking full-time to manage the business. Hmm. Business, as I imagine in all oddities shops is, it's kind of up and down, good months, bad months. But well enough that, going well enough that he could quit cooking. That's yeah, interesting. yeah. He was known to dumpster dive when he was in need of some more supplies to kind of, I don't know. As you, as do. you do. Like, literally, guys. Again, I've been to many in oddities shops. There's some great cool shit there. There's also always some random ass shit there. Yes. That's the that's fun, fun shit. Uh, <laughs> he also ended up taking in lodgers and renters at the Charlotte house. So it's just him. And you saw the pictures of the houses. They're pretty big. They're mm-hmm. like three, four bedroom houses. Definitely. Yeah. So yeah. he took in lodgers. And this is something that I'm going to take issue with every fucking source I saw. Mm. Basically what I would see over and over and over again in the vast majority of reporting I shouldn't say every source, was that it would describe him as taking in, quote, stray homeless people, drug abusers, basically anybody really on the on the struggle bus. Mm. And it'd say that he really wanted to work with them and help them get clean, and he really wanted them to better their lives. Like, he was really devoted to helping these people, okay? Okay. But then they just, they wouldn't get clean, they just wouldn't. And he would just get so mad and so frustrated at them that they couldn't get clean and they couldn't clean their lives up like he did. That And he was trying so hard. And that's when he started to get resentful. And I call bullshit on all of that. 100% on all of that. He took in people that he thought were weak because he knew that he could control them. And Yep. He could take advantage of them. He could, yeah, yeah. And we're just going to see that pattern escalate like fuck. So. Mm-hmm. And we've already seen it escalate. Mm-hmm. It's already yeah. escalated. His first vulnerable population was animals. Mm-hmm. And now, and it's, now this. it's this. Like, it's only going to grow. And his behavior is only going to grow. Like, he always wanted people that he thought were weaker and smaller than him. Mm-hmm. And also, this, like, bullshit of, like, oh, he wanted these people to get clean and he wanted to help them. He was fucking using and selling at the same time. Yeah, no, he was not helping anybody. He was sharing these drugs. I guarantee you he kept them high. Mm-hmm. I think any any oh, yeah. kindness that he did give them, he only did to get power and control over them. Mm-hmm. There was something in it for him. And I think time. that that yeah. started way earlier than a lot of the sources will say. Yeah. And all he has to do is track back his history and you can see that mm-hmm. thread. But... Yeah. If he gave them cash, he had a point up on them. If he gave them drugs, then he now had control over them. Right. So he also really kind of liked the image that he had in town of like, oh, Bob's such a good guy. Look at those. Mm -hmm. Mm, He's doing such a good thing. He loved that reputation. It's feeding that narcissistic ego. 
Yeah, makes perfect sense. There's also, there's a little bit of mixed reporting on this next part that I'm going to talk about. And honestly, like, unless I really dug into court records, there would be no way for me to verify it. And honestly, it's fucking busy season at my work and I'm drowning. Um, (laughs) The spoon count is very low right now. So I did not dig into those records. But I'm going to trust Generation Y because they have a lot of resources. (laughs) A lot of time to research. Because they go into that quite a bit more and they were able to find a little bit more verification. That there were rumors that judges and other community officials would actually send young men drug addicts to Bob for, quote, mentorship. Oh, interesting. And Mm. treatment and recovery services. That's really interesting. Now, we know of at least one verified incident of this. Okay, so it stands yeah. to reason that there were yeah. And whether or not it was, like, official or not, he was on, like, official roles as, like, a drug treatment provider, he fancied himself a bit of a therapist and a life coach. Of course he did. <sighs> I don't trust anybody that calls themselves a life coach. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he loved he loved desperate people being dependent on him, is, like, the long and short of it. Discuss is my next bullet yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We did that. We've been discussing this entire time through. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like you put that in there, though. That's really cute. So whatever we think, what we know from Bob's later confession and interviews is that between 1982 and 1984, um, this taking in borders and this, like, kind of getting control and building his ego and building his reputation, what that is hiding is increasingly dark sexual fantasies Mm -hmm. i um also wonder i'm curious like since you had mentioned earlier sex work um i'm wondering if some of these borders were also like connections to other people that he could then victimize many of them were sex workers he victimized them individually Mm. and also like the sex work community is pretty tight-knit and especially it would have been in like the early 80s yeah so i'm wondering if he's using them for like a really just gross kind of networking oh 100 percent, 100 percent. it's a really gross fucking network and we're going to see exactly how dark that gets Mm. and this is one of the things that i find really interesting and really especially disgusting about bob berdella that i do not find in almost any other serial killer so Behind Bob's kind of public facade, public facade. Yes. (laughs) A lot of words put together in my head before I tried to figure that one out. Understandable. Um, Behind his public facade was this like building, building, building fantasy of sadism, torture, sexual sadism, um, wanting to have his own sex slave, this obsession with rape, just obsession Mm -hmm. And if we're thinking, again, were there any triggers at this point that really started to put him over the edge, that breakup with the Vietnam veteran is really the only big trigger. Mm. But we can talk about kind of what I think is a little trigger slash excuse. Okay. Right now. Okay. So we're going to settle into July of 1984. Okay. Bob Berdella runs into the 19-year-old Jerry Howell. Jerry is actually the son of a friend and business friend, business guy. He, Paul Howell. (laughs) You know a lot about business things. (laughs) (laughs) 
Jerry is Jerry Howell is the son of Paul Howell, who actually ran the booth next to Bordellas at the flea market and ah. was kind of like a business associate. They were friendly. They knew each other for a mm-hmm. few years. Bordella had actually met Jerry five years prior in 1979, so when Jerry was 14. Mm, interesting. And kind of all of that time, like, Jerry would be helping his dad out of the flea market, kind of popping in. Bordella was, it was said that he would kind of, like, try to joke with Jerry, making sexual jokes, making kind of, like, innuendo. Mm. I'm not sure how much of this Jerry would have reciprocated or been comfortable with. Right. Paul did not like Bordella because of this. Mm. Um, he he already didn't like Bordella because of his sexuality and the way that he would kind mm. of openly talk about it. But the fact that he was making these come-ons and comments to his son. Yeah. And just, like, making jokes about gay sex to his fucking teenage son pissed yeah. him off. I, it would piss That's, me off, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At some point, um, as Jerry gets older, when he's like 18, 19, Jerry gets into, you know, teenage trouble and Bordella loans Jerry some money to pay off a legal bill. Mm. Basically a court fine. And Jerry was unable to pay him back. He would often make excuses about it, which Bordella then would kind of like, every time he would see Jerry, just become increasingly resentful about so on July 4th, 1984, Bordella runs into Jerry, um, who is trying to get a ride to a dance in the neighboring town of Merriam, Missouri. Mm. Bordella offered to give him a ride and on the way offered him drugs and alcohol. Eventually, driving, it, rather than driving to Merriam, drove to the house on Charlotte Street. Mm. When they get there, Bordella and Howell are drinking, doing cocaine, other street drugs. Bordella thinks, this is my time. You know what? Oh, God. This is my time. I'm going to get what I want from Jerry. Mm. I believe that he had been having sexual fantasies toward Jerry since he was 14. Yeah, that stands to reason. Yeah. So he gets a tray full of tranquilizers, Valium and acipromazine, which, if anybody's curious, the way that it is revealed that he got Valium and acipromazine was from the veterinarian for his two chow chows. Interesting. What's the what's the other drug for? Is it just a sedative? They're both just sedatives. They're both tranquilizers. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Valium is a, still a pretty well known kind of. Yeah, I know what Valium is, but I don't know what knockout drug. Uh, yeah. Acipromazine is. It will do the same thing. So okay. it's a double dose of fucking knock you on your ass. Um, they were prescribed to his dogs because his dogs were so aggressive. Mm. Interesting. Okay. But Bordella takes the opportunity, he grabs the drugs, and tranquilizes Howell. As soon as he's out, Bob ties him up, and while he's unconscious, drags him upstairs, rapes him repeatedly, both with his own penis and then with foreign objects that he had in the house. Uh, Any random foreign object. This is kind of the part that I don't want to dwell too much on, um, but other kind of reports will give you a lot more detail into. But he used a lot of vegetables, cucumbers, and carrots to rape these men, as well as other objects that were in the house. Just kind of indiscriminately, pretty much. And pretty indiscriminately, he really seemed to like cucumbers. I don't know. Um, I'm laughing because that's really uncomfortable. Yeah, it's deep, deeply uncomfortable. 
but uh, he, Birdella tries to keep Howl semi-conscious. What he doesn't want is Howl completely conscious. He wants, he likes that Howl can fight back, but not really. Yeah, just enough to like, yeah. He wants to hear and feel the fear and the pain. Mm-hmm. And then he leaves Howell drugged and tied to the bed. And the next morning, Berdella gets up and goes to work like everything's normal. Wow. Seriously? Yep. What a disgusting human. Yep. He's at work, but you know what? He's so distracted and so excited Ugh. that he closes up shop early. And goes right back home to where Howell is still tied up and drugged. And when he gets back to his house, he goes right back to raping, torturing, and drugging Howell. Oh, God, that poor boy. At one point, he begins beating the 19-year-old Howell with a metal rod, um, just letting his rage completely take hold of him. Um, And then starts taking notes in a notebook. So he started that with the first one. He started that with the first one. Hmm. The second day of the torture, he begins to take notes, documenting the time, the position of the rape, and the objects he used to abuse these men. Wow. At 10 p.m. that night, Jerry Howell dies choking on his own vomit. Ugh. Berdella drags Howell's body to the basement, suspends his body... From the ceiling. He had pulleys on the ceiling. So he was prepared. Yeah. He had pulleys mounted on the ceiling. He slices Hal's jugular and bleeds him over the bathtub. Oh, God. All the while, Bordella is taking pictures and masturbating to the scene that he has created. Jeez. And when he's done, he cuts up Hal's body with a chainsaw and a butcher knife set. Puts his body in trash bags which he holds on to while he waits for garbage day, watches the garbage truck coming down the road, and just before it hits his house, throws the trash bags into the garbage trucks and watches it drive away. That's interesting, too. And with that, Jerry Howell's body disappears. Wow. And Bordella goes back to his photos, adoring them, mesmerized over what he did, and starts to, goes back to his notebook to try to remember everything that he did, make notes about it, savor it, study it. Howell's body would never be found. His, really? Never. None of these bodies would be found. Mm-hmm. Um, his father reported him, or Jerry Howell's father reported him missing. And Jerry apparently always suspected Berdella mm. that if Berdella didn't do it, then he knew something interesting okay um, but when asked Berdella just said yeah no i picked him up i dropped him off at the dance i don't know hmm. i don't know what happened that's interesting that his dad went straight there though his dad hated Berdella, and his dad apparently yeah. had a good gut apparently so i mean he saw something well eh. yeah it's it's interesting that he saw something insidious not just insidious but yeah that dark you know Mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure there was some of his own prejudice at play but of course but also he was right so (laughs) yeah yeah 
Uh, mm. So we're going to walk through each one of Verdella's victims. I'm not going to go into such severe detail about the torture and the yeah. abuse that he inflicted. Like I said, the information's out there if you want to know exactly how many times each man was raped and exactly with what. You can read his confession, but I'm just... I'm not here for that right now. Yeah, I will have questions, though. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Please, stop me. Ask them. Okay. Um, so, some time is going to go by, actually, while Berdella is honestly just kind of like... He's both savoring and relishing in what he did, but also, like, really afraid that he's going to get caught. Mm. So, he's, like, a little paranoid, but also literally fantasizing about what he did and wanting to do it again and the urge keeps hitting the urge keeps hitting after about 10 months nobody reports anything nobody's coming after him like he would be questioned by the police about this but he would say exactly that like oh i dropped him off at the dance never saw him again don't know what you're talking about interesting but during this 10 months he's clearly planning he want he's trying to figure out what can he get away with what does he want Maybe he tried to push it out of his mind for a while, but I don't think he tried that hard. Mm. I wouldn't imagine that he would. Yeah. <laughs> he wants, at the end of the day, he wants a sex slave. Yeah. And after 10 months and, you know, you know, nothing's come after him, he's still out there living his life. Yeah. He says, oh, maybe nobody misses a gay sex worker with a drug problem. And I'm sure in his mind he thinks that he committed the perfect crime, right? Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Because, again, remember that... Howell was a drug user. There's mixed reports about whether or not he was actually a sex worker. Mm. But it was clear that he is somebody that Bob Bradella didn't think of as very human. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound like there are a lot of people that he did think of as very human, though. I think... Really. No, I think he thought of himself as human, and that was about it. Yeah, yeah. So on April 10th, 1985, Robert Sheldon a 23-year-old homeless man that Bertella had previously, quote, taken care of mm-hmm. for several years while Sheldon was in the height of his drug addiction, arrives at Bertella's house looking for a place to stay. He's still using substances. He needs some help. Bertella had given him shelter before, so he tries to go back again. Mm-hmm. It's said that Bertella was actually not very attracted to Sheldon, and that is relevant in this situation, in this particular yeah. case, that he was actually really turned off by how severe his substance abuse was. Hmm. But the two started drinking, partying, doing drugs, sedatives, uppers, whatever. Yeah. So, like, Burdella's thinking about it. Sheldon actually stays at his house for a full day. Burdella goes to work and comes back kind of later that night. And it's on that second night that Burdella is like, you know what, fuck it. This is just too easy. So, Bordella decided he would, quote, keep Sheldon. Ugh. He dosed him with a Valium until Sheldon passed out. Once he was passed out, Bordella dragged him upstairs, tied him to the bed, and began raping him. Once again, making notes of each way and each time that he raped and harmed the man. God. And it was out of pure sadistic curiosity that he then just starts to experiment. Yeah. He decided that he wanted to try to find ways to weaken Sheldon. He replaced the rope ties with piano wires to try to damage the nerves in his hands. Ugh. 
he used an eyedropper full of drain cleaner in his eyes to try to temporarily blind him. Ugh. Put needles under his fingernails, broke the bones in his hands, and tried to fill his ears with caulk so that he would be deaf. And essentially was trying to kind of like do sensory deprivation with him. Yeah, yeah. He was trying to desensitize him. Mm-hmm. Jeez. And then started electrocuting him with a 4,000 volt generator on his nipples. Good lord. Yeah. As Sheldon screamed in pain, Berdella only became more aroused. Again, some of these were, some of these methods were just to cause harm and just to see what he could do. Mm-hmm. Others were to weaken him. Um, he said that he broke his hands because if his hands were broken, he couldn't get untied and then he would have to stay there. Mm-hmm. Sheldon was tortured for four days. Oh my God. Once again with Berdella taking, I say they're detailed notes. They're like abbreviations and kind of chicken scratch on everything that he did. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're. But he's mis- noting everything that exactly. He did. It, but it's not narrative. Is that what you mean? Yes. Like he's not like paragraphing out. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It mm-hmm. it it's chicken scratch. It's abbreviations. It's all of that stuff. It's more like a catalog. He's cataloging what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. So on the fourth day, April fifteenth, Berdella got word that a worker was coming to his house to do some work. Apparently, Berdella had booked the worker like several months before, and it had oh, just geez. taken a long time for him to get there. Yeah. So the day that Berdella gets the word that the worker is coming, he's like, oh, fuck. He's going to find Sheldon. He's yeah. going to find my sex slave. Mm. Um, and he has to do something quick. So right there, he decides to suffocate Sheldon, killing him in the bed that he had been tortured in for four days. Berdella does the same thing that he had done with Howell. He strings his body up, bleeds and dissects the corpse, and disposes him in the trash in the exact same manner. Does he do the same thing with, like, waiting for the trash truck and everything? Yeah, and that's something that a lot of people would question. They're like, oh, there's no way that people wouldn't find him in the trash. You know, what if animals came by? They would have done something. No, he waited for the trucks to come by. He, like, sat yeah. at his, like, window Mm-hmm. And when the trucks were, like, a house or two away, he would rush out there and put his, like, things yeah. out. Yeah. And there certainly are plenty of cases I can think of where, like, you know, investigators knew that something was put in the trash. They investigate a landfill. It's too overwhelming. There's so – you can't track anything. I mean, you can track, like, the route of the truck. But once you get to a landfill, it's yeah. not like they're cataloging, like, okay – this is the square plot that came from Main Street in whatever town, you know? No, it was upsettingly easy. Yeah. Really upsettingly easy. Yeah. And Berdella is realizing that. He's clearly developing a plan and a pattern. And once he realizes, like, oh, I can just do this. Yeah. He doesn't look back. Yeah, no one's catching on. No one's, yeah. So that was in April of 1985, we're just going to be in June of 1985, just a few months oh. later. Bradella finds he runs into another old boarder, an old acquaintance, hmm. Mark Wallace. He had actually, Bradella found him in his backyard shed. There had been a thunderstorm and Mark Wallace was just kind of like ran back there for shelter. Oh, wow. Wallace had done yard work for him before and the two were pretty amiable. So that's why I think that Wallace was just like, Oh, shit, thunderstorm's coming. I'm just going to run into... Okay, like, here's a place I can go. Yeah, Yeah. I'm going to run into Bob's house. He knows me, whatever. Mm. 
in exactly the same pattern as before, Berdella invites him in. He kind of notices and he comments on Wallace like, oh, like you're looking depressed. You're looking anxious. Are you okay? Here, let me get you something to calm you down. Hmm. And then Berdella injects him with a high dose of chlorpromazine and he passes out. Chlorpromazine, yet another sedative. Okay. A lot of these. Did you are hear the, me say, what's that? A lot of these are the exact same drug class. Sure. Yeah. Like a really low dose of chlorpromazine might still be used to treat anxiety or, or psychosis. Mm. Sure. Yeah. It's the Eans. You know, the Eans. Exactly. The Eans. Mm-hmm. He drags Wallace upstairs, where once again he begins to viciously rape and torture him, continues his experiments with increasingly vicious and dehumanizing methods of electrical shock, chemical injection into the eyes and ears. This is where he starts this weird regimen of like hypodermic needle, just random injections into the back, the genitals, the neck, anything. Mm -hmm. Just to see, like just pure experimentation. Literally just to see what's going to cause the most harm and what's going to get Berdella the most aroused. Yeah. (sighs) Wallace only lives for a few days before dying from his wounds on June 23rd. And so we we know these dates this exactly because... His notes. They were in the notes. Berdella went back to these notes over and over and over again. Right. He was, yeah, studying, basically. He was studying and he was reliving it. Mm -hmm. This is the perfect, like, George Wong... It really is. Like, in my head, like, I know I don't have the cool George Wong voice that's always, like, so collected soothing and cool yeah sometimes when i was really mad at like when i had a shitty supervisor in grad school i would just like do my supervisor in his voice (laughs) (laughs) that's a really good technique yeah yeah that's a really good technique i like that yeah so anyway (laughs) uh Uh, So he dies from his wounds on June 23rd. His body would be disposed of, once again, similarly dehumanizing ways of the previous men. Continued notes in his steno book. Even he says, though, like, he took these notes, but sometimes he would just get so aroused and so caught up in it that he didn't remember to write everything down. Ugh. Ugh. Vomit. Anyway. Yeah, big time. Only a month later, in July of 1985... Walter James Ferris, once again, another former boarder and former friend of Berdella, came to his house looking for a place to crash for a bit. And and this is kind of what I'm saying that I think sets him apart from many other serial killers is he knew almost every single one of his victims on a personal level. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. So, I, you know, you had mentioned that um, Jerry's dad... Mm-hmm. was looking for him. Was anyone looking for these other men? No. So far, um, Jerry was the only one that was reported missing. Only one other man would be reported missing. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's a tragedy within the tragedy, too. Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, it's it's one of those things where it's really disgusting because Berdella realizes this so easily and takes such advantage of it. Yeah. And, again, it's like he knew these people. Yeah. These are the people that he had been, like, patted on the back for helping, too. Exactly. Yeah, these were the same people that he had been patted on the back of, like, oh, look, he's helping them. Oh, look, this is why I call bullshit on all of that. Yeah. And it adds just the extra sadness to it that, like, 
they trusted him, right? Mm-hmm. Like they were looking to him as as a kind of mentor versus most serial killer situations where it is a stranger, right? And part of me wonders, and I don't know if I'll ever have a really good or satisfying answer to this, but prior to kind of where I found myself specializing, I did a lot of work with adults and I did a lot of work with substance abuse and personality disorders mm-hmm. and things like that. And talking to those clients in treatment and in therapy a lot of them would know like yeah this person is abusive yeah this person is trash but where the fuck else am i gonna go yeah yeah so at least they're a person in my life yeah like there there's a roof over my head right now mm-hmm. and so again it's that question of did he ever give them a kindness other than a roof over his head or i don't know I don't have the words all put together for that, but. Yeah, but I mean, I I, I see what you're saying, though, because it's like the, you know, is the bar for a kindness so low that, mm-hmm. like, you know, the roof over the head is enough to offset the, mm-hmm. you know, manipulation or the cruelty or the, like, sexual, uncomfortable sexual come-ons or what have you. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. And I think that that is, I think that's a nuance that, gets lost in a lot of reporting especially like a lot of like kind of true crime reporting I think that that's a nuance when Mm. we're like oh well why did you stay there why did you do this why would you go to that house it's like well I mean it's the same language that we throw towards victims of abuse as well right like if you knew he was so bad why did you go back yeah exactly like like it's that simple like oh yeah you're right I should have just not done that (laughs) yeah I should have just stayed on the street I should have just been homeless right and then of course there's like I'm fucking on a high horse right now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know. And then there's, well, I would have just stuck it out. I would have gone to a shelter. I would have done this, blah, 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 uh-huh. blah, blah. Like, good for you. Like, I hope you're never actually tested on that. Exactly. Anyway, back to James, back to Walter James Ferris. Indeed. Um, so uh, Ferris comes to his house, basically just looking for a place to crash for a few days. Bardella, of course, says, yeah. But as soon as Ferris shows up on his doorstep, Bardella knew exactly what he was going to do. Mm-hmm. This was one that I think he was much more planful and intentional about. Shortly after Ferris arrives, Bertella tranquilizes him and drags him um, up to the upstairs bed and ties him up. Ferris is tortured nearly nonstop for 27 hours. Wow. With electrical shocks to the shoulders and testicles, needle injections, um, repeated sexual assaults. This is where Berdella's notes start to get just, like, more upsetting, if they could be. Mm. Um, Because he would jot down things like, after an electrical shock or after a particularly brutal event, he would jot down notes like, unable to sit up for more than 10 to 15 seconds. Oh, jeez. Very delayed breathing. After that 27-hour torture session, Berdella's final note on Walter James Ferris was, stop the project. Stop the project. After Ferris finally dies and succumbs to his wounds. Those three victims are in very, very quick succession. You've got April, June, and July. Mm -hmm. Part of my thought is that after that 27-hour session, fucking disgusting, whatever. Yeah. um, Bordella felt himself slipping. Mm. Kind of felt himself losing control. Because nearly a year would pass before he takes his next victim. 
Really? Okay, so I want to stay on that for a second. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. So um, with the others before this this last one, mm-hmm. um, he took breaks, right? He tortured them, went to bed, went to work, came mm-hmm. back. Yeah. And then, like, you know, the excitement would overwhelm him and he would come back or whatever. And he did not, like, when you say it was a 27-hour stint, like, we're true. talking... 27 hour constant 27 hours so that in and of itself feels like another turning point too like that's that's a major escalation in Mm -hmm. pathology i think yeah and i think i do think that Berdella had enough insight to recognize that Mm -hmm. and to he had enough insight to worry about getting caught Mm -hmm. so i think that is where he tried to slow himself down got it interesting okay so then we have a one-year hiatus. What's he up to during that year? Just, like, living his normal life? Living his normal life. Still being in the neighborhood associations. Still, you know, cooking, shopkeeping, being flamboyant and civic-minded. Mm. All right. Um, yeah. My theory is that he was plotting. He was yeah. planning. He, he was like, how can I do this? But I want to be more controlled about it. I want to keep them. Mm-hmm. I, well, he's also obviously one to um, get bored fast, yeah. it seems to me. Like, yeah. he's um, – I don't want this to sound positive in any way, shape, or form mm-hmm. when I say this word. But he's curious. Yes. Yeah. Right? So there's there's almost like a weird intellectual pursuit that's going on here as well. Yeah. He is curious. I think that he is somebody that can delay gratification. Mm-hmm. But he's delaying gratification because – Remember, he's taking notes. He's taking Polaroids. He's revisiting mm-hmm. them. He's reliving the crime. Yeah, yeah. So our next kidnapping takes place in June of 1986. Mm. Berdella runs into, once again, an old friend, Todd Stoops. Todd Stoops was, again, an old boarder. He had actually stayed with Berdella with his wife. Um, The two had stayed together while they were trying to get clean. In fact, Stoops is the one person that we know was referred to Berdella for drug and alcohol counseling. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That one we do have records of. Mm -hmm. And it was Stoops who actually told the police that Jerry Howell was last seen with Berdella. Really? So it was Stoops who kind of called the shot on that one interesting yeah but nothing came of it but nothing came of it so when Berdella runs into Stoops Stoops had separated from his wife he had gone further and further into his kind of substance abuse and his dependency he ran into him at the park Todd was clearly using again and engaging in sex work to make money again Stoops was not gay he was he had a wife but sex work made money. Yeah. And Berdella, as soon as he sees him, knows exactly what he wants to do. Berdella would later admit that he had always been extremely sexual attract- sexually attracted to Stoops. Hmm. So he goes up to him, he sees him, he says, come over to the house, have a hot meal, get yourself cleaned up, I'm your old buddy Bob. Mm-hmm. But again, as soon as he gets there... Bob tranquilizes him just as he had with the other men. Stoops was actually held captive for two full weeks. Whoa. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But this is where Verdella kind of lets his preferences lead him a little bit. Mm. Not in a good way. Yeah. Verdella initially tried to terrify Stoops. He wanted to scare him into submission and threaten him. So he takes out those Polaroids he had taken of the other men. Oh, wow. And shows them to Stoops to say, like, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't cooperate. This is, I'm, I've done this to these other men. You need to be a cooperative slave. And in addition to that, kind of just like psychological torture, the yeah. same physical torture methods are used, the electrical shocks, the drain cleaner, into his throat again so he can't scream. Stoops was there for so long. And I think that Stoops tried, I think, to be cooperative in whatever way you can. Yeah. Um, because he wants to live. Yeah. But Stoops is growing weaker and weaker. Again, it's been two weeks at this point. That he's able to, he's he's not able to even give the minimum fight that Bob wants. Remember, Bob wants him to fight back. Would Bob also be like feeding him and giving him water and stuff like that or nothing? That's, that's what happened. He wasn't. Uh. And he was growing weaker because he wasn't eating or anything like that. I think it was Stoops that actually he had an infection and Berdella went and got him antibiotics. Interesting. Yeah. So Stoops tries to ask for food while he's like tied to the bed and being tortured. And at first, Berdella denies this and says no. Again, he wants the control. Mm. At some later point, he tries to feed Stoops soup and ice cream. But at that point, by the time that actually happened, Stoops was so ill, he couldn't keep anything down. He couldn't even breathe sitting up. Mm. Like, Everything was just collapsing in on him. Stoops would eventually die, like I said, after two weeks in captivity due to um, severe anal damage and bleeding from all of the rapes. Oh, God. Yeah. He had a ruptured colon from the rape. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, that is fucking tragic. And that is... It really is. That's so hideous. I think that hurts because... I don't know. He was there for two weeks. He thought he was a friend. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like there's like a... There has to be a moment of like, I've been here long enough. He's going to let me go. Like, Mm -hmm. why keep me alive for this long? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, our next victim in June of 1987, Berdella befriends the 20-year-old Larry Wayne Pearson. I don't know if I've said it. All of these men were between 18 and 22. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he befriends the 20-year-old Larry Wayne Pearson. Pearson just kind of, like, walked into Berdella's shop one day, and the two started chatting about his interest in witchcraft and paganism and the oddities and kind of struck up a friendship. Hmm. Pearson would come to stay with Berdella for a short time, helping around with chores to make up for rent. And it, initially, this was the extent of their relationship, and Berdella claims he had no plans on kidnapping him. From the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. But on June 23rd, Pearson went to jail for, again, petty crime, robbery, and Berdella bailed him out of jail. So we've got a financial debt, which we know was used in the very first murder. Yes. And Pearson apparently, like, when Berdella went to pick him up from jail, made a joke about, like, you know, Berdella asked him, what happened? Why are you in jail? He made a joke about robbing gay men in Wichita. Hmm. And apparently that was enough. 
to set him over the edge, and he decided, you're my new victim. Wow. No. He was planning for that already. Yeah. When they got home that night, Pearson was drinking, and Berdella took the chance to, by surprise, tranquilize him. Pearson, unlike the other victims, was first dragged to the basement instead of oh, the bedroom. That's different. Okay. Berdella bound his hands and chained him to a brick column and then injected drain cleaner once again into Pearson's throat. Hmm. He liked doing that because the men couldn't scream. Right. And then he brought out the electrical transformer and began to torture him again. Berdella says that Pearson was quick to become cooperative. Those were his words. Mm. And after five days of torture in the basement, five days, Berdella tells Pearson that he's earned his trust and can now be moved up to the bedroom. Huh. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing like an increasing sophistication of his torture. Yeah. And an, uh, an increase in his comfort level, too, I think. Like, mm-hmm. now I'm I'm getting used to this enough, I guess, or I've done this enough times that I can risk two different locations within my house. You know, I, it doesn't have to be in this specific space. I, I'm obviously not getting caught, so I can move around. I can change my – I have freedom, right? Like, I can stretch my legs a little bit. It's like he's building his confidence in, like, oh, this is my identity as a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he moves him up to the bedroom, and he tells Pearson that if he continues to cooperate, allow himself to be raped, think about those words there, Yep. and not try to escape, that he can earn privileges. For weeks, Pearson endures a rigid schedule of multiple weeks. weeks. Wow. Multiple rapes per day, torture, and terrorizing. And this is, I mean, this is what he wanted the whole time, right? He wanted devotion. He wanted. Uh, This is everything he ever wanted is just having somebody that's devoted to him that Mm -hmm. will, quote, comply with the rapes. Right. Burdell is using the Polaroids that he had taken of his other victims to strike fear into Pearson to get his Mm -hmm. compliance saying, like, this is what's going to happen to you. Are you ready? Do you want to comply or do you want to end up like these men? Wow. For six weeks of pure what? terror. Jeez. During a period of forced oral sex, Pearson bites into Berdella's penis. Good. Good. Now, I've seen two stories about this. The first was that Berdella killed Pearson right then and there, bludgeoning mm. him and suffocating him before driving to the hospital. Driving to the hospital? Oh, for his penis. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, But I've also seen, and I think because of, I've seen it in just more legitimate places, um, I've also seen that he hit Pearson, knocked him out, but left him alive while Berdello went to the hospital. We know that he went to the hospital because there were interviews with the nurse that did the stitches. Mm. He required stitches in a recovery period for the injury. And the doctors told him at the hospital, hey, you need to stay for a few days. We need to monitor you. Mm-hmm. And Berdella tells them, oh, okay, I can, but I got to go home real quick. I got to take care of my dogs. I got to make sure my dogs are fed. Oh, geez. So the doctors are like, cool, just come back because we got to make sure nothing gets infected, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Goes home. Fearing that Pearson would escape, he decides to suffocate him. Wow. While he is still weak and injured, 
you know i don't i don't know what kind of like sewing your penis back on means but he is still strong enough to bleed and dissect pearson's body package it up yep yep but he keeps the head Oh my god. Which he buries in his backyard. There was one other head that he had kept. And so the one head that he kept, he moved into his living room. And now he puts Pearson's in its place. What the? And then he goes back to the doctor. So during the six weeks that Pearson was in his house, mm-hmm. was he going to work and stuff? Like yep. doing his normal daytime stuff? Yep. Remember, he's going to work. He's like, he's by this point kind of shied away from some more of that community work and kind of just like this is my thing now (laughs) but yeah he's still going to work he's still just a full functioning member of the community wow yeah um again as time is going on people aren't completely ignoring these missing missing men yeah howell and ferris were both reported missing by their families so walter ferris was reported missing okay Bordella, like I said, was questioned, but he, again, acted offended, like he had no idea what was going on. Right. Um, in, the, in the disappearances of both Howell and Ferris. But among the community of Kansas City sex workers, remember, like you had mentioned, this was kind of like a network now. Yeah. And it's always close-knit. It's, it, all, it just always it, is. It always is. Um, Bordella had been building this reputation of going from oh he's a safe place to stay or whatever or it's he's an okay place to crash to suddenly a damn strong reputation as a quote mean trick Mm. so he was still visiting sex workers during this time okay that was my other question yeah that's what it seems like he was still kind of trolling it said that the sex workers kind of like would congregate on a specific strip they knew Mm. his car sure yeah. Some of these details are just hard to find a place to put. <laughs> right. Yeah, but they Good knew- thing they come up so organically in our beautiful conversations. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, they knew him. And while the stories of the victims are the only ones that we have on record, or the stories about what happened to the victims specifically are the only ones that we have on record, other sex workers would report that Bob would tie them up, inject them with drugs. Wow pain would be inflicted on them so he was still it would seem experimenting but he had some kind of control at some point to let some of the men go Mm. that's interesting but eventually by this time in 1988 people were like no don't go to that house don't go yeah do not go to that house right he's mean he's nasty he's dangerous yeah but of course all the sex workers at the time were afraid to go to the police Right. Many of them would say, no, Kansas City police had a bad reputation amongst the gay community and the sex working community. Mm, They were known to harass them. They were known to not believe them. So from their perspective, there was no reason to go to the police. Sure. Yeah. So and I'm sure that that kind of goes into a lot of, again, how he got away with this for so long. 100%. Yeah. So... We're going to go, we are now in April of 1988 when Bordella will take his last victim. Mm. Well, we're actually in March of 1988. Okay. End of March 1988. Bordella meets 22-year-old Christopher Bryson, uh, who we met at the beginning. Mm-hmm. 
a sex worker that he meets on the street at 1 a.m. And again, Bryson is the only victim he did not know previously. That is really interesting. I know that it's his last victim and Mm -hmm. one that he didn't have like a personal relationship with. Yeah. So like I said, Bryson didn't know him. He likely heard the rumors amongst the other sex workers, but it Mm -hmm. also seems like he was kind of newer in town. Okay. Just like all the other victims, however, Bryson is lured into the house on Charlotte Street under the guise of drugs and sex work. He is quickly knocked unconscious with an iron bar. By this point, Bordello was like, no, nah, we're not playing games anymore. Right. I'm going to dive straight into what I want. Yeah. I think it's interesting if we actually look at the timeline. All of his attacks occur in that, like, April through August. Yeah, it's a spring to summer situation. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, I wonder, like, what's yeah. that cooling off, like, period, like, for him? Literally cooler weather. I don't like to do dick in the winter. Anyway. I don't like anything in the winter. I don't. I don't. It's bad. It is interesting, though, because we, like, we know he's got a steady place to live. He's not, like, traveling. He's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's got. He has real roots there. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's some degree of fluctuation in who's available. Yeah. In those times. And probably, I'd imagine, too, like, if he's taking in boarders and people are kind of in and out of his house. There's going to be more movement in the warmer months. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's said that he didn't take in as many borders kind of as we get to this period. Right. He was Which really, really kind yeah. of retreating into himself at this point. Mm-hmm. But, There's also going to yeah. be just like fewer people on the street exactly. in the dead yeah. of January, you know. Yeah. I also do think he went through this period of kind of a spree and then a cool off. Yeah. And I wonder how much he just kind of scared himself. Mm. Whatever. I don't know. I mean, it could also be something as shallow as, like, because he does have these, excuse me. Maybe he just got busy with work. (laughs) Could be. It could be a fast season. I was also thinking, like, because he has these, like, fast snap reactions. I also wonder, and he's obviously, like, a very visual person, if there's something about, like, the way that men were dressed Mm -hmm. in the warmer months. Like, it's Mm -hmm. shorts. It's tank tops. It's... You know, that that's, kind of stuff. That's interesting. And I think that's one of those small things that probably we don't give enough credit to. Yeah. Yeah. But because, like, we've seen him operate on such a hair trigger, mm-hmm. like, that's what makes me wonder if it could be something so snap and so visual. I actually, I could actually see that. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, we know what it's like for women to get blamed for what they wear. Um, or do we? Anyway. That's why I wear a sweatsuit on an 85 degree day today. It was a bajillion degrees. I'm fucking hot as hell. Yeah. Yeah, you are. Anyway. <laughs> um, Bryson is really quickly knocked out, knocked unconscious. He's hit with a metal bar. And he starts kind of changing his process. He starts, again, by showing Bryson the photos of his past victims. He doesn't even drug him right off. He shows them the, his past victims, telling them that he's killed these men he will threaten him immediately unless like I'll kill you if you don't get your co- get if I don't get your cooperation and then pretty quickly begins the torture the beatings the rapes um he swabs Bryson's eyes with ammonia ah I know as he swipes his eyes with the swabs his eyes with the ammonia he says the only things you need to worry about are you me and this house 
So he's mm. like been building this script in his head now. And I think that he has really built a fantasy around this. I think so too. But at the same time, it also seems to me like he's, I think what the pattern that I'm seeing is also that he's, he's building so much confidence that he can, in his mind, abduct a stranger whose compunction he's not aware of, mm-hmm. right? Like with, with all the other guys, he knew them well enough to know, to probably make a guess about like, how compliant they might be. He was able to, you know, he probably knew some sense of their physicality. He knew their personalities. Mm -hmm. He didn't know that with Bryson. This is a stranger abduction. So the fact that he doesn't know all that stuff about Bryson and is still taking bigger risks, I think says a lot about his ego at this point in the game. Interesting. I, I, I hadn't thought about it that way. Because I get like in my head, I always think of like the closer the person is to you, the bigger the risk. But when you think about it that way, that makes sense. And I think Bradella is all ego. He's mm-hmm. all narcissistic ego. So yeah, to be like, I can do this to anyone. Right. Makes sense. Like he also knew that the other guys had issues with drugs, mm-hmm. right? For example, we don't know that about Brayson. We knew he was a sex worker at this point, right? Mm-hmm. But, and even if he was using drugs, Bradella wouldn't know that. Mm-hmm. I think he probably would have assumed it. Yeah. Also, I think that a big part of moving to strangers was the fact that he had isolated. Like I said, the other sex workers were no longer coming to him. Yeah, yeah. People were, he was starting to get a reputation. So I think that that's part of it. I also think like Mm -hmm. the ego of like, just do this now. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, he kept Stoops for six weeks. Right. I mean, that had to have really built him up. Mm -hmm. So... Okay. He strips Bryson naked and puts a dog collar on him. The ultimate symbol of his ownership of this man. Ugh. He gives Bryson a clear set of rules. Do not fight the schedule of rapes because it was on the schedule now. Do not scream. And he tells him that he can earn privileges like movies and cigarettes if he cooperates. Wow. He tells Bryson, quote, I've gotten this far with other people and they're dead now because of mistakes they made. Bryson does his best to cooperate. He submits to daily rapes, torture, and humiliation. He was so cooperative that he convinced Bradella to, instead of tying his hands behind him and up, to tie his hands in front of him. Hmm. Because he says, my arms go numb. And I, you know, I can't fight back. My arms are numb. Interesting. Yeah, very smart. Bryson's pretty clever, yeah. Yeah. He persuades him to tie his hands in front of him. He also persuades Berdella to leave a TV in the room with a remote so that he can watch basketball. Wow. He ends up earning cigarettes and movies within only a few days of being there. Cigarettes that he lit with the matches in the room. Smart. Mm Mm-hmm. All the while, in all of these cases, like I said, Bordell is just, like, living his daily life. He has this schedule of daily torture and rape sessions, and then he goes to work. So one day, while Bordella is at work, the captive Bryson notices that Bordella has left the matches in the room. Wow. With his hands tied in front of him, he manages to kind of, like I said, kind of shimmy his way over to get them. And he burns the ropes through. He does a 
fucking number on his hands, but he burns the ropes through. Still, he is so smart. Still naked, aside from, like, the dog collar and severely beaten and battered, he just throws his body through the window. Wow. I mean, you had to. He had to. He absolutely had yeah, to. He, but in the Wow. In, in the interview in Bizarre Bizarre, he basically said, he's like, I didn't know if he was there or not. I didn't know if I had any time. I didn't know if it was night or day. He's like, I just ran. Jeez. That's incredible that he actually submitted to an interview in that movie. I know. After all this. And it's such a, it's such a tacky documentary. It's, it really sounds like it. It's so bad. Yeah. It really sounds awful. Like I said, like, it, it's fascinating, the interviews that they got, because, like, they got Bryson, they got the nurse um, from the hospital, they got a couple of the other sex workers in the community. Like. That's absolutely wild yeah. to me. Anyway, now we're kind of back in where we started our story. Bryson escapes the house, grabs a meter reader who is able to help him get to a home. The police are called. The police center are initially like, oh, these silly gays. But eventually, again, Berdella arrives at the house. He's quickly arrested. The police find this terrifying fucking scene. Yeah. Including, like I said, a total of, there were 334 Polaroid pictures. I think at the beginning I said there were 350. There were 334 Polaroids and 34 prints of men found in various states of torture and abuse. It's still absolutely insane. Yeah. Police were able to obviously identify Bryson in the photos, but then they have hundreds of photos of just, they don't know who the hell any of these men are. Right. For the record, a lot of the photos are available online. They are. I do not recommend you looking at them. Yeah, I did a, a cursory look just to, well, I, I just wanted to get a look at what he looks like. And then the photos pop up. They do. And that's, that's I think, the warning to, to furnish is, like, you cannot Google him without seeing some of those images. So mm-hmm. just proceed with a degree of caution. Yeah. It's, s- steal yourself, you know. Yeah, really steal yourself. Like, we'll obviously put our photos up on the socials. I will not be putting any of these up. I think they're disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, they're, they're really rough. They're really rough yeah, to look at. They're horrid. I. They also found newspaper clippings of the missing men, including Jerry Howell and Walter James Ferris, um, discovered in a closet. Yeah, he. So he collected he everything. Was tracking. Yeah, he was. He was tracking. a collector, just like the movie. It took a full week to catalog everything that they found in the house. Berdella at his police interview was clearly very flustered, angry, not accustomed to not being in control. Right. He was absolutely irate at these accusations. Um, his narcissistic shell was just completely breaking down. And breaking down quick. Um, he was feeling humiliated because he's the captive now. Right. He didn't like not being in control. And eventually he just shuts down. Like, he just stops talking. He refuses to speak to the police. He refuses to speak to anybody else. Like, narcissistic shutdown. Yeah, yeah. Ego broken and on the floor. Right. Berdella was held in Jackson County Jail. He was kind of kept separate, mostly for his own protection. 
Right. And I know that a lot of people are going to be like, oh, just throw them in Gen Pop, let them take care of it. But at this point, there was a still like a very fresh and very active investigation going on. We needed him yeah. alive. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> in the investigation, police interview over 500 people. Wow. 500. Um, because they have hundreds of photos of men that they can identify. Mm, yeah. They have a couple of missing men in the community that they know of. But mm. also, again, I'm I'm certain people go missing every day. And you never know if it's related to this case or another case or an overdose or what. Yeah, so they have of- to run it down. I mean, the responsible yeah. thing to do is they have to run it down, even if it doesn't end up related to this at all. Yeah. yeah. Many of the people that they interviewed could not believe that Verdella did this. They refused to believe this. Mm. Again, he was a neighborhood-friendly, amiable guy. Yeah. A lot of people, especially people in the gay community specifically, felt like the police targeted him. Mm. Again, remember, the the Kansas City PD at this time was known for harassing gay men, for sex workers. And initially, when they heard about this case, they're like, that's a fucking smear campaign. No. Mm. Right, which is an understandable major. It is. It is. But once the evidence came out, there was literally no denying what had happened. Yeah, yeah. And of course, again, once the evidence comes out, then all of the crazy fucking rumors come out. Mm. I could go on about this shit for days, but I won't because this episode is getting really long. But this is where we probably start to get a lot of, like, the lore part of things, Oh, so much of the lore. The idea that, oh, he had to be working in some kind of cabal because Mm -hmm. the big one that fueled this is that Verdella himself is in some of the photos. Mm. And they're like, oh, there's no way that he could have taken that photo. Like, there had to be somebody else there. He had to be working with somebody. Oh, that's interesting. There were timers on cameras at this time. Yeah. Like... If you have a family photo from, like, the 80s, there was a timer on it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and even Burdell is like, yeah, that's how I did that. <laughs> uh, they didn't believe that he just threw the bodies away in the trash. Remember that they only found the two skulls in the house. Right. And so they're like, well, what happened to all the other bodies? Who knows how many he could have been out there? There's hundreds of photos. It could have been hundreds of men. Mm. So we don't know, you know. Did he kill the bodies? He must have fed them because he was a chef. So he must have been a cannibal and he must have fed people. Ah, because I thought there was some cannibal stuff going on here too. As with all cannibal accusations, there is no credible evidence to support it. Mm -hmm. It is, I think it comes from the idea that he was a chef and because he butchered the bodies, he is known as the butcher of Kansas. Mm -hmm. Um... Again, there's people in various documentaries and things like that that will say, oh, he he fed us this food and it tasted so funny. I think that's a lot of just kind of looking back, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People want... Sensationalism. It's a lot of sensationalism. It's a lot of people that I think want to be able to be like, oh, well, I always knew there was something about him because this, that, and the other thing. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a human reaction. It is, it is, it is. And one you see a billion times. So we have to just kind of like understand that it's a thing that happens. There was nothing in his very extensive confession. Yeah. About cannibalism. Yeah. 
And even if he didn't put it in his confession, I feel like he probably would have put it in his notebook because he was so tied to that notebook. He would have put it in his notebook if he did it. He would have 100%. He would have fucking relished it. He would have fucking jerked off while you ate it. Like, Because, mm-hmm. I mean, clearly he has no qualms about what he writes down. So Yeah, nothing. Um, but best, of course, is the work done by the irreplaceable Geraldo Rivera. I was wondering when we were going to have Geraldo. I'm never going to let you down on Geraldo. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, who just decided, apropos of nothing. <laughs> as, you, as you do when you're Geraldo Rivera. As you do when you're Geraldo Rivera. Um, just decided that uh, he was in a satanic cult and these were per- clearly satanic murders. Ah, obviously, obviously. He really was at the forefront of so much of Satanic Panic. Oh, my When, when you look back at it, he was really responsible he for a lot. loved accusing people of Satanism. Like, mm-hmm. fucking loved it. In his, like, I'm going to use big, big scare quotes here, uh, documentary, mm-hmm. um, Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground. Uh-huh. Geraldo dedicates a whole-ass segment to how Berdella was clearly a Satan worshiper and how all of these murders were done in devotion to Satan. Um, they were all human sacrifices and he kept the skulls to sacrifice to Satan and there was a big government cover-up and conspiracy. <laughs> like, he brought in the whole, like, Kansas court or, like, Missouri courts into this. Um it was so irresponsible. If you were ever curious, the documentary Devil Worship Exposing Satan's Underground is available on YouTube. I watch it regularly. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of those things I think I have seen probably 20 to 25 times. Nice. Nice. <laughs> nice. It is absolute trash. Solid way to spend your time. It is. I, I love it. Although it is the uh, the start of my favorite conspiracy theory that Taylor Swift is Anton LaVey's daughter reincarnated. I mean, she does look just like her, though. She does. She does. Or a clone of Anton LaVey's daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look them up because I believe that conspiracy. It's a very interesting conspiracy. And anyway, so Ant- so Taylor Swift is also clearly a Satanist. So. You don't get to that level of genius without a dash of Satanism. <laughs> um, it's such a trash segment that he's like, oh, well, why wasn't this information released? And why wasn't, why are the police hiding this? What's their motive? Why are police not, why are the courts not talking about this? Mm. This documentary came out while they were still investigating. Jeez, did it really? Yes. So, like... The reason, Geraldo, why police weren't releasing that yeah. was because they still had an active investigation. That's so irresponsible of him. Wow. Absolute utter. Like, where is the journalistic integrity there? Like, it's, it's funny to watch fucking decades later, but we also, like, cannot forget the massive, like, cultural and human toll of the satanic panic. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a huge, huge deal. It destroyed people's lives. It sounds so silly now, but it really wasn't then. Mm -hmm. I mean, Geraldo is a joke. Yes. 
But I had to explain who Geraldo was to my students a couple of years ago. That was really fun. Did you just explain <laughs> it? Did you just go like this? I, there was a mustache involved, yes. Okay, yes. <laughs> but I had to explain him when I was teaching Kendrick Lamar because he had a lot of uh, insults about Kendrick Lamar's work. Geraldo did? Yeah, he did. What the fuck does Geraldo have to say about Kendrick? Nothing good. Nothing good. And this is why another reason why you're trash. That's right. I hope That's he listens right. to our podcast. I hope so, too. I'm sure he's a big, big fan until right now. I'm going to get sued again. I'm going to get us sued so many times. <laughs> you really are. These are my opinions. These are not statements of fact. That's right. And this is the reason I have to go back to grad school again and get a law degree. Um, again, like, literally the only evidence that they that Geraldo had to support this was that Berdella had, quote, satanic objects in his house, like satanic Bibles and various figures and artifacts. Bro, he owned an oddities shop. Yeah, I mean, so do I. I know. <laughs> I have the Satan Cellar. I have Michelle yes. Remembers. Yes, you do. Um, but yeah, he was just, and it's fucking stupid. Um. So Berdella himself denied any involvement in Satanism or literally any religion. Um, none of the 500 people that they interviewed mentioned dick about Satanism. Mm-hmm. So to court, and then we're going to wrap this up. We're going to wrap this up. Okay. okay. Um, I have to wash my hair. So. I'm so tired. I have to take a shower. <laughs> I've sweated. Guys, it was 90 degrees in downtown Chicago today. Yeah, you are glistening. Anyway, so going to court. So two charges of murder were eventually brought against Bradella because those were the only bodies that they had. And it is very, very hard uh, to have a murder investigation when you don't have a body. And yeah. if you don't have it, why risk it? Mm-hmm. Like in, in this particular case, why risk it? Right. Yeah. Because you're still going to get the, yeah. the fullest extent of the law thrown at you. Exactly. Yeah. So Bradella initially is still refusing to cooperate. He's still crying in his little baby whatever Mm. um but the police did an interesting thing and this is fascinating so they took some of the photographs which at the time Bradella was saying that was all consensual Uh uh-huh uh-huh Bradella's like no they liked that remember I'm one of those silly gays there's one of those pictures where the man is very clearly dead yes that is not no yes no he was consensually dead apparently obviously (sighs) So what they do is they make Bertella pose for the photos and do a kind of show me thing. Interesting. Like, show me how you did this. Mm-hmm. Show me what you had them do. That's really interesting. So they force Bertella into these humiliating positions that he forced so many others into. Oh, I'm sure he did not like that. This is such a George Wong thing. It is. It um, is. And I think that this is what broke him. Mm-hmm. That he had to suffer some of the humiliation. He had to be, he had to do as told. He had to be controlled. Mm-hmm. Talk um, about a strike to his ego. Fuck, yes. This is the shit I want to hear. Yes, it is. Um, eventually, as police are putting their case together, the evidence is pretty fucking solid on the two charges that they had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In exchange for the death for taking the death penalty off the table, we know Missouri loves a death penalty. Yes, they do. Missouri loves a fucking death penalty. Berdella was like, Berdella's like, no, mm. I'll confess to everything. Because hmm. again, he wants control. Yeah. What gives him control? He, yeah, controlling the narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So he agrees to give a full detailed account of all six murders. The judge in this case, his name was Judge Alvin Randall, describes Berdello's recall of the murders as, quote, uncanny. Berdello went into specific and painful detail of each and every single moment of torture, giving specific codings of his journals, including, quote, BF for anal rape, CF for rape with a carrot, and so ah. on, and so on, and so on. I will not go through all of them. No. But you can the... find them if you want them. Yeah. Ugh. I just, I don't, I don't need that in my life right now. Like I said, I'm low yeah. on spoons. No. So the confession honestly was like the only way that police were also going to get any, any answers. Mm-hmm. They had the notes, but they didn't have anybody's name, and they wanted to be able to give these families closure as much as right. they possibly could. Some sense of it. Yeah. Some sense of any a- answers of what happened to your kid. So, well, the police needed this information from the confession. It's also said that it was unsettling how much Berdella seemed to relish in giving his confession. Mm-hmm. Um, remember, he's a showman at his dark, dark little seed of a heart. He's a narcissist and he's a sadist. The ability to give him can give his confession gave him control of the narrative. Yeah. He relished disgustingly in the reactions of others. He liked the shock and the offense that he was causing. He seemed to be enjoying every twinge and twitch that he gave people. It makes perfect sense when you look at back at his track record. I know, and I hate it so much. Yeah. He admits that he saw his victims as something less than human, referring to them as his play toys. Ugh. I'm going to share a quote from Karen Mail's article in the Crime Library. She said, quote, In Berdella's case, the victims were young men with little or no education. Most of the victims made a living selling themselves and drugs. Obviously, they were beneath the social stature of a well-liked and successful businessman such as Berdella. It was this mentality that led Berdella to the grotesque acts of torture to which his victims were subjected. He would befriend them and then deprive them of all emotion and sensation unless administered by him. In his confession, he was grabbing that power back. He was saying, I have the information you want. Now I'm important again. Yep. Yeah. In addition to his confession, he would also give a televised interview. Also available on YouTube if you want to listen to it. Um, It's a lot of fucking narcissism. It's a lot of woe is me. He complained that he was being dehumanized. He complained that he was being put in in a bad light. That the media has made me into this monster and you have dehumanized me in the same way I dehumanized my victims. Yeah, where exactly is the good light to put you in? <laughs> where, where's that? Remember, he's civic-minded. True. True. You're right. I have to um, keep that in mind. But he says, I'm a person and I just deserve to be understood. Now, he'd pull a couple of publicity stunts in addition to this one. He started a charity fund for the victim's family. Uh, um, yeah, right? It's... Uh, 
Like, do that I think the so families gross. deserve some compensation? Fuck yeah. Do I think it's disgusting that you tried to start a charity fund? Also, fuck yeah. Um, he tried to contact a pastor who he was friendly with. Like, that pastor was, like, the only person that he actually would talk to. I think it just made him look good. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's not too much else to say about his life after these fucking publicity stunts. Um, mm-hmm. He served four years in the Kansas State Penitentiary in, Je- in Jefferson City, Missouri, um, before dying of a heart attack at age 43. Oh, did he really? Yeah, he died pretty young. So he reportedly complained that prison officials were withholding medical care. Mm. Now, here's the thing. I would believe that. Mm-hmm. Would 100% believe that. It, it It's happened before. Would not shock me. Sure. Um, but records also show that when he did complain of heart pains, he was immediately taken to the infirmary and then to the mm. hospital. Remember, he's had a heart condition since he was a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that about so, him. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and that's where he dies. Good. Yeah. His estate was bought by, <laughs> quote, an eccentric millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> As you do. <laughs> As you do. Um, this eccentric millionaire, not terrible. His name was Della Dunmeyer. Um, he paid to have it, like, fully searched inch by inch for any more evidence that could have been found. Good for him. Um, and then paid to have it torn down. So okay, when you look him. up the plot on Zillow, it's an mm-hmm. empty plot. Ah, okay, okay. Like I said, Christopher Bryson survived the attack. Um, he eventually changed his name to Muda to State, and good for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope he found some kind of peace in his life. Me too. And that's really all we have to say about Mr. Berdella. Wow. So what's your takeaway on why are you like this? Fragile ego, sad little baby boy narcissist. There you go. Like, I just, like, the more I read it, the more I'm like, you are a psych 101 fucking Mm -hmm. (laughs) quiz question. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like, I could have written this profile my first year of grad school. Yeah, yeah. He's transparent as fuck. Like, he was bullied as a kid. His dad didn't love him. He was awkward and Mm -hmm. he didn't get enough praise as a kid so he grew into a narcissist that desperately sought control Mm -hmm. and then he has like the most stereotypical escalation Mm -hmm. animals and then yeah 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 so why are you like this because you're straight out of a fucking textbook yeah we could rename narcissistic pathology fucking bob Bradella syndrome but I won't because it'll feed your ego, so fuck off. Right. Yes. Um, obviously, he's like the extremist of the extreme of that. He has mm-hmm. sadism. He has psychopathy. He didn't see people as humans. Mm-hmm. He dehumanized anybody that was around him. And if he thought he was better than everybody, that's why yeah. he thought he could get away with this because he didn't think these men were men. Yeah. Yeah, he had a really, really insanely toxic mix of extreme pathologies. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Well, yeah. I feel icky. It's icky. He's icky. Yeah, he's really, really awful. I just think it's it's also really interesting from a cultural standpoint. Like, mm-hmm. I want to, I want to figure out like why is he? I don't. I'm glad he's not as famous, mm-hmm. but why is he in doing the same 
things not as famous as Dahmer. That that's one thing that a lot of people will kind of put forward and I do think it's interesting because like Dahmer did a very similar thing if he wanted sex slaves, right? Mm-hmm. Dahmer did the same thing with male sex workers and, mm-hmm. you know, other people from minoritized communities. Yeah, and pictures and keeping bodies and bathtub dismemberments. I mean, it's so mm-hmm. it's so in step. Yeah, so like why is why when we think of big psychopaths why doesn't bob Berdella kind of come directly to mind is it because he's so transparent mm. i don't know I, I i don't think that that's the answer hey I, I well maybe i need to brush up on my Dahmer, but i feel like he's not any more nuanced i don't yeah i would have to brush up on my Dahmer too but yeah i've been like avoiding anything about like the the big biggies because Mm-hmm. You know, I I do spend so much time trying to devote energy to this, you know, the lesser known. So yeah, yeah, and and I like that we do. I like doing these biggies every once in a while because I like to do the profiles, and so sometimes mm-hmm. it's only the biggies that have that much information Enough out information about them. available. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like, yeah, Dahmer's been done to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like it's not a part of our like cultural imagination, so to speak. Bob Berdella's not so. But yeah. It's funny it's like, because, I wonder why that is. Like, I have, like, childhood memories of, like, when Dahmer got murdered. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I have, yeah, like, too. I remember him being a part of the cultural lexicon from the time I was very young. Mm-hmm. I don't get that from Bob Burdell. And he was, at the time, in Missouri and Kansas. Like, he was, like, all over the news. And he was a big joke. And there was, like, mm-hmm. a radio DJ that made up a song about him to the tune of Donovan's Mellow Yellow. They call me Bob Burdell. Okay. Yeah. 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 Got it. Gross. Okay. Yeah. I it, can't believe I just sang that. Yeah. It was gross. Even the families were really mad about it. Yeah. It's it's really distasteful. It was, this was also a really period of time where America had no fucking like tact. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was trying to find more information about the victims and it's just not there because I think at this period of true crime, we didn't talk about victims, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, that's a very new moment we're having. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Well, thank you for the uh, the disgust that I'll be going to bed with tonight. Really You're appreciate welcome. it. Welcome. I hope that you enjoy it. Would you like yes. to change the subject? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Would you like me to tell you what we're going to be talking about next time? Sure. Is it going to be any more pleasant? Uh, it's gonna be a bit of, it's gonna be interesting. So next time, if you will come back to Midwretched, please, friends, we will be looking, uh, at two parallel stories that don't intertwine insofar as what happened to either of these women. We're going to be talking about two missing women from the same town. Um, the cases are not related other than the proximity. Um, but we're going to be using it as a kind of a launch pad for discussion of missing white woman syndrome. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. fun. That's a big change. I like that. Yeah. So it'll be, it'll be an interesting, it'll be an interesting ride, my friends. I am fascinated. Okay. Yes. So please come back for that. Yay. Please come back for that. Right. Well, enjoy your um, spring slash summer in the Midwest. Yeah, right. Um, I hope <laughs> for you the got- next four days before it snows, probably. <laughs> oh, no, shut up! I put my tomatoes out. They can't. I know. I know. I'm sorry. Mm. Sorry, tomato babies. They can't survive. I know. 
I can't find pumpkins, by the way. Can you find pumpkins? I haven't gone out yet. I'm going this weekend, hopefully. So, yeah. Okay. We planted some flowers, but that's as far as we got. Yeah. I planted columbine in the front, and I forgot what a pretty flower that is. They are pretty. They are pretty. Anyway, let's sign off. Yep. I need to pee. Okay, friends. I need to wash my hair. So um, so it's a fresh, beautiful palette for Clint tomorrow. Um, so, friends, look. Uh, today is hard and gross, so practice some self-care. Think about uh, some of these, all of these victims here, and whatever your beliefs are as far as the cosmos, <laughs> send them some good thoughts. Yes. Some remembrances. Please, please, please give them give them some vibes. Give them their family some vibes because they did not deserve what the hell came to them. No, um, no one does. No one does. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So Anyway. So uh, with that, my friends, please be nice. And please eat some cheese to make yourself feel better. Yes. And we love you. We love you. So we don't want you to forget that. No, please don't.